Okay, so if you don't know me, my name is David Gray. I'm nobody important. Um, I, uh, the reason I have the privilege of standing before you today is for one reason. It's because I'm longtime friends with Pastor Kelly and Denise Goins. Um, we've known each other. I was doing the math this morning, and it always makes me a little depressed. <laughs> uh, Pastor Kelly and Denise and I, I met them in 1993. And uh, I was six. <laughs> Denise and Kelly were, f- were five and four, somewhere in there. And uh, we started doing ministry together back then for a really long time, like a couple centuries, it seems like. So anyway, I'm here, and I'm glad to be here, and I'm, uh, I'm happy to pinch hit for Kelly. Uh, Kelly's a great, great, great friend, and... Um, Anyway, I'm just happy to be here. You know what? i got to tell you something. I love Watts Bar Church. Um, and it's not just because Kelly and Denise are my good friends. There's just so much good stuff about this church. Uh, one of the reasons I love Watts Bar Church is because Watts Bar is the kind of place. Listen, here's something I never thought I would hear in church. Praise the Lord for pee all over everything. Now, that's some good praise in the Lord right there. Let me tell you something else. I, I, sometimes I love the praise and worship. Man, oh, man, you guys are so, so good. Yes? Sometimes I log in on Sunday mornings when you're live streaming, live streaming, just to, for two reasons. One, to listen to the praise and worship and also to post sarcastic cal- comments on Kelly's sermons. I do that a lot. Um, but I, I want to tell you, I feel like you probably need to give your praise and worship team a raise, like everybody up there. Did you, did you notice how many of them need new pants? <laughs> I mean, like, like I can buy you some pants, you guys. And Ben, too. My God. Penn needs some bigger, he needs some bigger pants. <laughs> Wait, did I just say that? <laughs> I'm in trouble. So when, when uh, Casey called me this week, I got to tell you a funny story before I get started. When Casey called me this week and asked me if I could fill in, um, I said, well, how long, how long do you guys normally preach on a Sunday morning? And, and he said, 25 to 30 minutes. And I just laughed and laughed and laughed. If you've been to any of my Wednesday night classes, you know that is a joke all by it. Look at, they're over here busting up right now. They know. So I'm going to tell you something right now. I, I do tend to be a little long. I'm going to do the best I can. Um, but with this kind of 25, 30-minute time frame, I'm just going to ask you right out of the gate, can I have five extra minutes this morning? If you say I can have five minutes, would you just slip up your hand? Okay, that's five, 10, 15, 20. <laughs> all right, all right, let's get into the Word this morning. You ready to get into the Word? So I want to talk to you for a few minutes this morning about one of my absolute favorite passages of Scripture. It's in Mark chapter 2. And so if you have your Bibles, which you should, because after all, this is a church. Uh, we're going to start in Mark chapter 2, and we're going to go through the first 12 verses. Um, and, I, and what I'm going to do, I'm just going to tell you, if you've been to my Wednesday night class, I came up here last 
late summer, early fall, and taught seven weeks out of the book of James, and then I came up this spring and taught five weeks on marriage. And If you've been a part of those classes, especially the James class, one of the things I like to do is I just like to get into a passage of Scripture and dig and just kind of unpack what's in there. And so that's what I'm going to do this morning. It might seem a little scattered, but I really feel like the Lord has a word for you. Amen? And so because this is one of my favorite passages, um, it, it, or because I'm just going to kind of unpack it that way, it might come out a little scattered. I, I hope it doesn't. But honestly, when you think about it, you know, just having two surgeries in one week is no real good excuse to miss service. And so you get what you get. And I, and I also thought about this 25, 30-minute thing. I thought, you know what? Pastor Kelly's gone. Casey's gone. Like, who's going to stop me? At this, and you're only doing one service. I have total freedom. I may never preach on a Sunday again, but here we go. All right. Mark chapter 2, starting in verse 1, and I'm reading out of the New King James. Follow along if you can. And again, everybody say again. He entered Capernaum after some days, and it was heard that he was in the house. Immediately, many gathered together so that there was no longer room to receive them, not even near the door. And he preached the word to them that they, that they, then they came to him bringing a paralytic who was carried by four men. And when they could not come near him because of the crowd, they uncovered the roof where he was. So when they had broken through, they let down the bed on which the paralytic was laying. When Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, son, your sins are forgiven you. And some of the scribes were sitting there and reasoning in their hearts, why does this man speak blasphemies like this? Who can forgive sins but God alone? But immediately when Jesus perceived in his spirit that they reasoned thus within themselves, he said to them, why do you reason about these things in your hearts? What's easier to say? To say to the paralytic, your sins are forgiven? Or to say, arise, take up your bed, and walk? But that you may know that the Son of God has power on earth to forgive sins he turned to the paralytic and said, I say to you, arise, take up your bed, and go to your house. Immediately he arose, took up his bed, and went out in the presence of them all, and they were all amazed and glorified God, saying, we never saw anything like this. Everybody say, we never saw anything like that. So, because this is one of my favorite passages, some of you may have heard me share some thoughts out of this before, but just suck it up, buttercup. We're going to get through it. First thing you need to know, I'm just going to do a little bit of background. This is early, early, early in Jesus' ministry. And, um, you know, right at the beginning it says, and again he entered Capernaum. If you go back in chapter 1, we're not going to go back there and read it. I would ask you to do that on your own. You're going to find out that, G find out that Jesus was in Capernaum just a couple days earlier, and he was actually in this same house. And what happened was he, it's probably Simon Peter's house. And in chapter 1, what you find out is that he actually healed Simon Peter's mother-in-law, which is shocking because, honestly, I've never met a mother-in-law that I liked. Oh. oh, man. We need coffee all through the house, please. So he heals Peter's mother-in-law, and then because he healed Peter's mother-in-law, all, all the city starts bringing other people into the house so that Jesus can heal them. And so what the Bible says in chapter 1 is that he healed many that day, including Peter's mother-in-law. And so he leaves 
He goes out of town. He comes back a couple days later. He comes back to this same house. And that's why when you get to this story, he goes in this house and he's getting ready to teach and people just flock to the house, right? Like, like there's so many people jammed up in that house that the, you can't even get in near the door. They're like standing on the edge of the door trying to, trying to look in and see and hear. And they didn't have this awesome microphone system back then, right? But there were so many guys, so many people there that nobody else could get in the house. And then, just like we read, these four guys, they heard that Jesus was there. They knew that Jesus had healed people. So they went and got their friend, this paralytic, and brought him to the house. Why? So Jesus could heal him, right? But when they got there, there's so many people crammed around the door, they can't get in. Let me just stop right there and tell you what I see here. So what I do when I read the scriptures is I try to insert myself in the story and try to picture and imagine what it's like to be in those situations at that time. But I'm going to tell you what I see here in this story. I see a sad picture of much of the church. And let me tell you what I mean by that. These guys couldn't get in the house because of one thing, only one thing, the other people in the house. Too many times, listen to me, church, too many times it's the people inside the church hindering the ones that are outside of the church from getting in the church. It was the people inside the house who kept the people outside of the house from getting into the house. Does that make sense to you? Here's what I've noticed. There's two things. Church people, church people, Christian people, people who call themselves by the name of Jesus Christ can be so rude, so condescending, so judgmental, so political. Let me just give you a news flash. Jesus is neither a Republican nor a Democrat. He's not affiliated with a political party, but for whatever reason, the bulk of Western Christians think that that's all they should be posting about on social media. I'm so tired of it. And let me tell you what's happening. The world is watching. They're watching your judgmentalism and your, your Christian nationalism and your politicism, and they're running away from the church. I will. <laughs> Thank you. And so people, church people get so condescending and judgmental and rude and political and self-centered too, by the way, that a lot of times some people that are outside of the church want nothing to do with getting inside the church. Now listen, I'm not talking about watering down the gospel. I'm not talking about proclaiming truths that have been known truths for thousands of years. I'm talking about our demeanor. I'm talking about our care and our compassion. I'm talking about operating out of love. Can I tell you something this morning? When you became a believer, you entered a different kingdom. I had to walk away because this is not in my notes, which means we're going 45 minutes. What that means is when you enter a different kingdom, listen, listen, Jesus talked more about the kingdom of God than he talked about anything else. Do you know there's no sinner's prayer in the scriptures? I'm not saying there's anything wrong with the sinner's prayer. I'm just simply saying that's not the main message. The main message is you go from one kingdom, that's the kingdom of this world, into a brand new kingdom, and that's the kingdom of God. And when you move from this kingdom to this kingdom, you have to disassociate from the previous kingdom because no man can serve two masters. And let me tell you something, political systems, governmental systems, media systems, uh, 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 you know, 
consumerism and business systems, those are all systems of this world. And God has called you to a completely different kingdom. Amen? And so it's time that you start acting like you're of a different kingdom. Let me tell you something. The people in this world are not looking for us to mimic the culture. You guys have great praise and worship. I've already said that. But let me just tell you something. People can get great music anywhere. And so the, the fact that it's kicking and, dude, bass player, dude, I can't remember your name. We've known each other for a while. You were getting into it, Bo. Boom, 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 boom. I mean, that's awesome, but that's not what's going to draw people to the kingdom of God. That's not what's going to draw people to Christ. It's you. You acting like something altogether separate and altogether different than what they get anywhere else. You are the kingdom. Does that make sense to you? Here's the other thing. Here's the other thing. In church so many times, people are more concerned with how God wants to bless them, how God wants to speak to them, how they need a prophetic word, how God needs to heal them, that they forget actually about the people all around them. We get so focused on ourselves and what we need when we come to the house that we forget that there's people outside of the house that also need to be in the house. Does that make sense? And that's what's happening in this story. The folks in the story were more, were more concerned with what they were going to get out of being in the house, being in the presence of Jesus, than they were with the ones right outside of the house. And you have to ask yourself, you have to wonder. Well, you don't have to. I'm going to do it for you. How many of the people that were in that house that day walked right by the paralytic to get to the house? Am I making sense to you right now? Don't get mad at me. You know, Pastor Kelly and Denise, they've been here for how long? Nine years? Ten years? They've never asked me to speak on a Sunday before. It's only when they're desperate, and this is why. <laughs> they bring me on, on Wednesdays because they know I can't I uh, infect as many people there. <laughs> so these four guys, they bring their friend to Jesus because one reason, they want Jesus to heal them. They can't get in, so what do they do? You guys read it? They go up to the roof. And they, and they tear it open. You know why this is one of my favorite passages of Scripture? Because to me, it's so sneaking hilarious. Like, there is so much funny stuff in the Scripture. These guys get to the house, and it's so crowded. I mean, just think about this. Put this in modern day. You're having a family reunion, and you get, there's so many people that come to the family reunion, or you're having a church picnic, and there's so many people at the church picnic that nobody else can get in the house. So somebody goes and gets their extension ladder, climbs up to the roof, and starts cutting a hole in the roof. And listen, it's not just a little hole so that they can look in. They cut a hole in the roof so big that a dude laying on a bed could be lowered down through the roof. Now, to be clear, roofs in ancient times were flat, and they actually operated much like a second story on people's houses, and people would go up to the roof to pray, or if they had guests, they would let them stay on the, on the roof. But... Here's what I want you to see. Put, put yourself in the story. Roofs back then were basically made out of beams and plaster. And the plaster was essentially mud. 
with sticks and grass and other fibers in it like that. So you got Jesus, who's sitting, he's, he's in the house, and he's teaching. People are gathered around. They're, they're jammed in. It's really, really tight. They're even in the altar area, right? And some of them are sitting up on the stage because they want to just shove so many people up in there. And everybody's listening attentively to every single word. And then suddenly, as Jesus is teaching, they hear this crazy noise above them like the biggest rat you've ever seen in your life scurrying around in the ceiling in our modern day it'd be like if we were having church and all of a sudden you heard a skill saw up on the roof or a hammer or a crowbar or a jackhammer and I imagine all the self-centered people in that room getting upset and I'll tell you what you know the reason why I picture them getting upset is because church people get upset over everything (laughs) right like people church people get upset if you sit in their seat I can just about guarantee you half the people in this room at least are sitting in the same place you sat last Sunday. And some visitor comes in and they're like, uh, 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 what, uh. Right? And I I imagine all the leaders there getting upset. You know why? Because these jokers are disrupting the service. Oh, my God. Don't, Don't those people up there know we have a run sheet? We have an agenda. It's three songs. We already did the intro drama. We already played the, the what's the concert series song. It's not time for interruption. By the way, I knew it was the concert series, and I didn't care. Okay. We already did the special song. We already had the preacher. These guys are messing everything up. But let me tell you what I think Jesus is doing. And I know this isn't in the scripture. I'm just making it up but I've got the microphone, so I think Jesus was laughing. Like, I think he's LOLing if you want to do, if you want to do text speech, right? Like, I think he's busting a gut. I also wonder when I think about this, I think this is Peter's house. We know that from chapter one. I'm, I'm wondering if Peter's going, dude, is my homeowner insurance going to cover this? I have a $3,000 deductible. But look at what happens next. Look at verse 5. The Bible says, or Mark writes in verse 5, when Jesus saw their faith. Everybody say, saw their faith. I only do that to make sure you're still awake, by the way. So I have this question when I read this passage. I have this question. It's how do you, how do you see faith? How do you see faith? I mean, did those four guys go to an altar? Was it because they were in church? Was it because they read their Bible or sang a worship song? Did they have an earnest look of hope? I have faith, Jesus. Did they preach good? No, it it was none of those things, right? And then you also have to ask, did, did Jesus just sense that they have faith? Is that what he meant by saw they had faith? Did he just somehow know that they had faith? Absolutely not. The scripture is very clear when you get into the word studies that he physically saw something. It was with his eyes. And we know this because when you look further down, remember, he sensed in his heart, he knew what the scribes and Pharisees were thinking. He perceived in his heart, I should say. Those are two extremely different words. So let me tell you what he saw. I mean, I think it's obvious. Those jokers are just tore the roof open, right? Like, like he saw their action, Right? Let me tell you something, church, and this might shock some of you. True faith 
True faith, Ben, is always coupled with action. True faith always manifests itself in our lives in action. Abraham had faith, so he left his family, left his land, left everything he knew, and went to a land that he didn't know of. That was action. Moses had faith, so he stuck his rod into the, into the sea, and then the sea split. The sea wouldn't have split if there had not been some action associated with it. Are you hearing me? Naaman had faith, so he was looked foolish enough and silly enough to dip in the river seven times to get his healing because faith always manifests itself in action. The woman with the issue of blood, just a couple chapters later, she decides, that she doesn't care what anybody thinks about her. She presses through the crowd for one reason. What? Because she just wanted to touch the hem of Jesus' garment. Every single one of these people put their faith into action. Even Jesus endured the cross for one reason, for the joy that was set before him. Jesus didn't have, his eyes were not set on what was happening in his immediate circumstances. If they were, he would have been really, really depressed. And in fact, he was. He went into the garden at the end of his life and, and wept and cried and prayed so hard that great, great drops of sweat and blood poured from his forehead. And he said, Lord, if, it, if it's your will, not my will, but yours be done. Am I telling the truth? But the reason why he was willing to do that is because the Hebrew writer said, for the joy that was set before him, Jesus had his eyes on something else and it caused him to act now. Does that make sense to you? See, see, faith sees into the future, but acts right now. James put it this way, and you guys know this, especially if you were in my class, which you should always come to my class. Faith without works is dead. In fact, James goes on to say, well, I like to say faith without works has no life-producing results. In fact, James goes on to say, you tell me you have faith. That's great. Good for you. He actually said, even the demons have faith. Swallow that pill. He goes, he goes you say you have faith? Great. I'll show you my faith. How? By my works. Now, let's look at the practicality of it. If these guys, these four guys had sat outside the house just waiting, just believing, maybe even praying, their friend probably never would have received a miracle right? They had to put thief, thief, thief on their faith because true faith is always revealed in action. Listen to me. When Jesus sees that you are so moved by the goodness of God, by his wonderful grace in your life, by his sacrifice, by his love for the world, that it affects the way you actually live, the way you act, the way you react, the way you respond, when Jesus sees your faith in action, let me tell you what will happen. He'll begin to move. Your faith should impact. It should change the way you live. It should change the way you act. Jesus said, Jesus said in Matthew 5, he said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. Listen, folks, people are watching and they're looking for you. And I know I already said this. But listen, 
in Pentecostal and charismatic churches, we, we have this tendency to sum everything up into the miraculous. Like if, if God will just move for us, if he'll heal us, if he'll deliver us, if he'll set us free, if he'll bring us financial blessing, that's God really moving. But when Jesus said, you are the salt of the earth and you are the light of the world, he said it right after he gave them the Beatitudes. And in the Beatitudes, he said, blessed are the meek. Blessed are the humble. Blessed are the peacemakers. Blessed are those that are low in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of God. And then he said, you're the salt of the earth. You're the light of the world. This is what people are looking for. Amen? In fact, one person said, the best evidence of faith is the effort we put forth to obtain faith's prize. Now look, look a little closer at verse 5. Mark says that Jesus saw their faith. Whose faith? Well, obviously the faith of the four guys, right? It actually says nothing about the faith of the man himself. I mean, he obviously had to have some faith, otherwise he probably wouldn't let his buddies lower him through the roof. But my point is this. Jesus saw their faith, is what the Scripture says, what Mark recorded. And let me just tell you something. It might be your faith that's moved to action that brings breakthrough to the people around you. People who trust God, regardless of what they see happening in the world, people who trust God, regardless of what they see happening in their own circumstances, people who are more concerned with the kingdom than they are with their political party, people that, are, that have their eyes on eternity rather than their eyes on the temporary, people that are willing to sacrifice for one thing, for the good of those around them. The world is looking for real faith, church. And let me just tell you something. Real faith isn't just about showing up on Sunday. It isn't about standing up and shouting and clapping. And by the way, when the worship leader goes, hey, let's all stand to our feet. Have you ever wondered, is there any other way to stand? <laughs> Sorry, Bob. Does this make sense to you? I'm going to say this to you. If you don't allow your faith in Christ to move you into action, everyone around you is affected. Everybody around you is affected. If you don't allow faith to really change you and impact you and move you. So this is interesting because these four guys, they went through all this hassle because they wanted Jesus. They expected Jesus to heal their friend, right? But look at what Jesus does. This is so crazy. Does Jesus heal their guy? Yes, eventually. But initially, actually, no, he does not. Look what he says. They came to him, bringing him a paralytic who was carried by four men, and when they could not come near the crowd, they lowered him through the roof. Uh, when Jesus saw their faith, he said to the paralytic, Son, your sins are forgiven. <laughs> like, this is not at all what the people expected. He'd already proven that he could heal people, and that's the only reason they brought the guy there in the first place. Nobody was talking about forgiveness of sins. But they, they tear the hole up in the roof. They lower him down, and Jesus goes, Jesus sees their faith. He's like, yeah, good job, guys. You're forgiven. 
Can you, can you imagine the reaction of these four guys in that moment? All of their efforts, all of their expectations, their whole purpose that day was to get their friend healed, but God does something totally unexpected. And listen, we don't, we don't really know how long it was between when he said, your sins are forgiven, and when he said, take up your bed and walk. I mean, like, like did, he finish, did he go, okay, your sins are forgiven, I'm going to finish preaching now? Did, did he wait until after the offering? And the whole time those guys were like, right? Did, did he wait until after the special song? Did he wait until after the altar call? Was it five minutes? Was it an hour? Was it like when Paul preached in Acts chapter 13 and he preached all night long, so long that a guy fell asleep, fell out a window and died? Was it like, did, did Jesus preach that long? We have no idea. But they're looking over the edge, watching to see what happens. Can I just tell you, when God... And I'm glad Ben said this. When God doesn't do things the way we had hoped or prayed or believed, it's because he's up to something bigger. It's because he's up to something better than we could possibly imagine. To him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly more than we ask or even imagine. Sometimes you don't get what you ask for because God's looking further down the road. Listen, thank you. Jesus has a plan. And your circumstances do not freak God out. God never panics. He never panics. God never panics. God only plans. He's planning. He's planning. He's planning. And let me tell you what he's planning. He's planning something that most of the time is completely different than what we think he's going to do. Because what he's planning is to work all things together for your good. Does that make sense? Like we all know that verse, right? Romans 8, 28, all things work together for good for those who love the Lord and are called according to his purpose. The problem is most people don't know the verse after it. And he says, for those whom he foreknew, he also predestined to be conformed into the image of Christ. Can I tell you this morning, when things are going good and when things are not going good, it's because God has a plan, and that's to make you more like Christ. And that's the end of the story. God doesn't always give us what we want, but he always gives us what we need. Think about it. What was more important for that guy that day? Better yet, what's more important for you or me? Is it more important that I get healed from type 1 diabetes, or is it more important that I get forgiven by the blood of the cross and the resurrected Christ? You tell me. The psalmist said this life is 70 years and full of trouble. Why are we so focused on this thing? Listen, I've just reached a place in the last couple of years, and it's not that I've shut my emotions off. I haven't divorced my emotions. I'm just, I'm just not affected by this stuff anymore. Like, I'm, I'm, it didn't, I didn't freak out when the election went different than everybody, you know? I, I, like, I'm really sad about what's happened in Afghanistan, but, but I'm not freaked out about it. it. It frustrates the tar out of me when I see these TV preachers preaching the goofiest, stupidest crap. Yes, yes, I said that. But it doesn't affect me because this is not where my eyes are. Are you tracking with me right now? My eyes, my eyes are there. And what that does is that motivates me to operate here. When you love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind, it'll move your faith into action, and you'll start loving your neighbor as yourself.
Does that make sense to you? We've got, we've got to settle this issue. We've got to settle the issue of the sovereignty of God. You either trust God or you don't. And I'm going to tell you something. If you don't learn to trust God when things don't go the way you want them to, you will forever be frustrated and disappointed and constantly questioning whether God is really good or not. Can I assure you of something? God is good. The psalmist wrote in Psalm 116, he said, God is good all the time. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? But listen, Jesus does eventually heal this guy, right? So that's fantastic. But I want to tell you something. At the end of the day, this story isn't about the healing of this man. It's not about the religious leaders there. It's not about the people in the house. This story is about Jesus. Everybody say, Jesus. And and let me tell you, it's about more than Jesus having authority over sickness and disease, which he certainly does. The problem is, for many of us, that's where we stop. That's where our faith stops. Up until this point, they knew him as teacher. They knew him as prophet. They knew him as healer. But what they did not know him as is the son of God. And this is right at the beginning of Jesus' ministry, and he's already setting, he's teeing himself up for his crucifixion. Do you, do you see that? Like he goes, he goes, your sins are forgiven. And that made everybody in the room mad. It's like his second or third miracle in the book of Mark, and that's it. And he's making everybody in the room mad because to say that your sins were forgiven was to say you're God. And they considered that blasphemy. That's what this story is about, folks. This story is about the message of forgiveness and where forgiveness comes from. Verse 10, but that you may know that the Son of Man has power on earth for what? To forgive sins. He said to the paralytic, take up your bed, walk. That's the main point over and over and over again in the scriptures. You can read about all the healings. You can read about the demonic deliverances. You can read about all that stuff. But all of those are so that you know that he has the authority to forgive sin. All of that is so that you know he is the son of God. He's not Santa Claus. He's not a genie in a bottle. He's not a vending machine. He is God. And if we make this thing about anything else, we have completely misunderstood the gospel. Am I making sense to you? Are are you all still awake? Are you mad? I don't care. Because like six hands just went up. I am mad. So I'm going to share this last thing with you. I have no idea how long I've gone. Has it been two hours yet? Okay. (laughs) Did you say close? Is that what you said? I was reading the story, and it just hit me. What, what about these four guys? Like, like, who are these four guys? Like, like where did they come from? What do, we, what do we know about these guys? If you think about the story like you would think about a movie, Jesus is obviously the hero, right? The paralytic is the main character, or, or at least the best supporting actor. The scribes are the antagonists. These guys, when you read the story, really, they're just extras on the scene. They really have very little to do with the story on a whole. In fact, you can find the same story in both Matthew and Luke, and Matthew doesn't even mention that there was four guys. Luke mentions that there were guys, but he doesn't tell us how many of them there were. 
And by the way, when I say guys, I mean guys, gals, whatever, okay? So these guys don't seem to be actually very important to the story. But I just want to tell you, if these guys hadn't been there, that paralytic might not have received a miracle. Amen? So, so I'm intrigued by these guys. I'm fascinated by, by these guys. And what I'm most fascinated about them, and this is going to sound crazy, I'm, gonna, I'm fascinated about what we don't know about them. Like, I'm fascinated by what the Scripture does not say. I know you're supposed to preach Scripture on Sunday, but I'm going to preach <laughs> not Scripture. So here's what we don't know. We don't know where they came from. We don't know who they were. We don't know what their names were. We don't know what they had to give up to be there that day. We don't know how old they are. We don't know if they were young, if they were teenagers in the youth group in 412, if they were middle age, if they were old age, if they were retired. We don't know their social status. We don't know if they were rich or poor. We don't know if they were employed or unemployed. We don't know if they were blue-collar workers, business owners, entrepreneurs, executives, line workers, farmers. We don't know if they were had a college education, a doctorate degree. We don't know if they were uneducated. We don't know what race they were. We don't know if they were black or white. And people go, oh, well, there were no. We don't know if they were Asian. We don't know. Well, there weren't, those, there weren't those people there. Yes, they were. That was like the center, right? Like, like you could spit on Africa from there. You could spit on the Middle East from there. We don't know what kind of family they came from. We don't know if they were broken. They, we don't know if they were abused. We don't know if they were, had a perfect family. We don't know if they were preacher's kids. And yes, they had preacher's kids back then. They were Pharisee's kids. We don't know their emotional makeup. We don't know their personality profile. We don't know if they were introverts or extroverts or depressed or joyful or happy or angry. We don't know their Enneagram number. We don't know their ministry calling. We don't know their spiritual gifts. We don't know if they were prophetic. We don't know if they spoke in tongues. We don't know if they had the gift of teaching. We don't know if they had the gift of administration. We don't know if they had the gift of helps. We don't know if they were the janitor. We don't know their marital status. Are you guys tracking with me right now? We don't know if they were single. We don't know if they were married. We don't know if they were divorced. We don't know if they were engaged. We don't know if they were on their third marriage. We don't know if they stayed married but hated each other. We don't know if they had kids or grandkids or adopted kids or no kids. Here's a biggie. We don't know their issues. Hey, hey, we all got issues. The difference is some of us use our issues to excuse us. I'm stopping there. We don't know their challenges. We don't know if they were addicted to something. We don't know what they were personally dealing with. We don't know what their struggles were. We don't know if they just recently had a family member die. We don't know what they had to overcome to be there that day. We don't know what their schedules were. We don't know what they had to turn down. We don't know what they could have been doing that day. They could have been on the lake. They could have been fishing, which, by the way, when I was driving up here, I must have saw six different boats and kayaks, and I was like, why am I going to church? <laughs> we don't know what kind of excuses they had. All we know about these four guys is that they had a friend in need, and they were going to do whatever it took to get him in the presence of Jesus. They weren't after the spotlight They didn't care who got the credit or the most attention. They didn't need a title. As far as we know, they didn't care who was seen as the leader among them. They didn't need anybody to know their name. They didn't need a YouTube channel. They didn't need a church. They didn't need a pulpit. These were four faceless, nameless characters who literally became the MVPs of this story. Can somebody say amen? 
Let me tell you something. God is not looking for you to be perfect or to, to check off some pedigree before he can use you. He's not checking your qualifications. He's not waiting for you to measure up. My God, he created you. Could you just stop and think about that for a second? He created you. Before you were in your mother's womb, he knew you. You wouldn't be here if he didn't have some purpose for you. And I'm just going to tell you, he is not expecting you to have it all together before he can use you. No, 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 no. In fact, the Apostle Paul said this, God chose what is foolish in the world to shame the wise. I qualify Listen, this gives me hope because I got issues. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> Denise was like, yes, I do. <laughs> look, look, God's not looking for ability. I just want to say that he's looking for availability. All he needs you to do is say, Lord, I'm available. I, I might not have it all together. I might not have all the answers. I might not know how to help somebody who's in need, but I'm available. Just just use me. Just, I'm here. I'm available. Just lead me and use me and, and open my eyes so that I see what you see, so that I can see the world the way you see it, so that I'm not so blinded by my own junk that I don't see the people around me that need you. Stop, listen, folks, stop comparing yourself to other people. Stop using Facebook and Twitter and Instagram to compare your life. Stop it. That's ridiculous. God is looking for people with one, one, one significant characteristic. That's three, by the way. One, one, one. Just kidding. Willingness and availability. God doesn't value competency as much as he values compassion. And from my view, in the beginning we said, what we saw in this story is what the church looks like. People in the house getting in the way of the people outside of the house who needed to be in the house from getting into the house. But when you look at these four guys, from my view, this is what the church is supposed to look like. Like like you have this contrast. It's different people, different stories, different backgrounds, different obstacles to overcome, different gifts, different abilities, all with one purpose, working together to get others into the presence of Jesus. Let me tell you something. God is looking for a few nameless faceless people that he can use. Why? Hey, if there's a worship team, actually, I don't need a whole team, just one dude on a guitar or one dude on a keyboard. Hmm? I know, I'm watching them. I'm watching them argue over which one of us has to go up there. Nobody told me it was my turn. It's on the run sheet. Listen, God's greatest desire, yeah, yes, I, I believe it's God's desire to heal people. I, I believe, I've seen it. I believe it's God's desire to deliver people. I, I do, I do. But you know what I believe more than that? Those are like all secondary issues. God's primary purpose is this. God's great, oh, it's on the screen. How cool is that? 
God's greatest desire is for people to encounter his son. Everything else is secondary. Amen? Do you believe that? Okay. Then I'm so glad it's you. No, listen, dude. All during worship, I, I kept coming back to you. I don't even like you. You know, I know we've said hi to each other here now and again, but honestly, I don't even know your name. But, um, and I know that's rude, and I, I'm disconnected socially. I'm okay. But I'm sitting there during the worship, and I kept being drawn back to you, and I just kept hearing one word, and maybe this was God, maybe this was me having too much coffee. I don't know. But I just kept hearing pillar. Like, like you are a pillar of strength. You are a pillar of strength to everybody that's around you. You're a pillar of... Denise is laughing. I don't know if that means she agrees or that she thinks I've lost it. Like, you, like, like you're quiet. You're unassuming. You second-guess yourself. You question yourself. But I'm just telling you, I believe Holy Spirit would say to you, you are a pillar of strength. Stop devaluing yourself. You're a strength to Bob. You're a strength to Kelly. You're a strength to Denise. And honestly, you don't even have to say a lot. You just got to, you just, when you show up, you are strong. And the people in your life need that. And this church needs that. So I'm going to close with this. Two things. Number one, trust God with your situation. Look, I I know people are going through a mess right now. Denise and I were talking right before service about how many people are in the hospital and all this stuff. Like, my, my daughter's pregnant and just had COVID, and, you know, people are having a tough time. I I know. When you trust God, regardless of what you're seeing, that's when the peace that passes understanding comes. It's not because you're never saying anything negative or never acknowledging your issue. That's all foolishness, not scriptural. It's because it's like, God, I I need you to move. I'm desperate for you to move. Like the three Hebrew children that were getting ready to be thrown in the lion's den. They said, to, they said to the king, they said, I, we know our God can deliver us, but even if he doesn't, we will not bow a knee. So I'm just going to ask you this, and we're not going to have an altar call. I'm just going to say, look, if you're, if you're battling something, you're struggling with something right now, and you need God to move, I just want you to slip up your hand. Yes, and every eye is open. Amen. Thank you for your honesty. You know, this whole every eye closed and every head bowed business, that's not scriptural either. How can we be the community of Christ to each other if we don't know what each other needs? I mean, come on, people. Yeah, I want you to be comfortable, but I don't want you to be so comfortable that you don't get healed. (laughs) 
So we're going to pray that God moves because I believe he wants to. But the second thing is I want you to ask yourself this. I just want you to think for a moment. Who, who needs my faith? Who is it that I interact with that needs my faith? In what ways do I need to ask God, how do I need to change so that I can better impact this world? Every morning, this is true. I'm not making this up. Every morning I pray. I'm not a long, I'm a long-winded preacher. I'm not a long-winded prayer. But I pray the same prayer every day, every day. Lord, help me to represent you well. Help me to represent you well. Help me to represent you well with the clerk at the grocery store. Help me to represent you well with the lady at Starbucks. Help me to represent you well with my employees. Help me to represent you well with my boss. Help me to represent you well with my customers. Help me to represent you well, especially with my own kids and my grandkids and my wife. Help me to represent you well. Because God's looking for some people that don't need a title. They are not waiting for a title. They're not waiting for attention. He's looking for nameless, faceless characters that just want to represent him well so that they can impact the world. Does this make sense? Let's pray. Lord, you're so good to us. As I said earlier, we know the psalmist said, you are good and you do good. Lord, sometimes when we see everything that's happening around us, it's easy to question that. But I know, God, and I believe with everything in me, you are up to something bigger. And things are happening in such a way that you're getting ready to do some pretty amazing and powerful things. And so, Lord, I ask for two things for the folks of Watts Bar Church. The first one is, God, many people raised their hands and said, we need God to move. I need God to move in this situation. So, God, I'm praying that you would indeed break through and that people would see your goodness and your faithfulness in the land of the living. But the second thing I pray, God, is that that a new level of anointing and a new level of living would come over the folks at Watts Bar Church that they would walk according to the Spirit and walk with such anointing that they represent you well. Not so the Watts Bar Church can grow. I mean, that would be great. But Father, so that your kingdom could grow. Lord, we're seeking first your kingdom and just trusting you that all the other things will be added as well. And so Lord, I pray that for this church in Jesus' name. And everybody said...